This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitschow. And I'm Stephen Garadini. And today, we're very honored to be doing an interseason episode where we're going to be interviewing Jessica Blank. Jessica Blank, for those of you who may not know, is an American actress, writer, and director who works in film, television, and theater. And I took that right off the Wikipedia page because I love that we get to talk to people who actually have Wikipedia pages. Chris knows about this. So it is true. But it's true. She's uh, a, a wildly uh, diverse uh, bibliography, filmography, and uh, theaterography. And it's a very, very interesting set of concepts and ideas that she works with that dovetail very nicely with uh, what we kind of want to do here on the show. So uh, without further ado, hello, Jessica. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It is very much our pleasure. Yeah. So we'll just jump into the questions. And uh, our first one is, you're known in in some circles for documentary theater. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what that is and perhaps yes. some of the process that brought you to that? Yes, absolutely. So um, documentary theater is theater that is created from, tr- generally speaking, from transcripts of interviews right? From real life materials. We also use court transcripts and material from the public record as well, but primarily Mm. we're Mm -hmm. working off of interview transcripts. So we go and we interview the subjects and then we, uh, we record audio on those, have those transcribed. And the script is created Probably, generally speaking, it's like about 95% straight out of the material that comes from the interviews. So if you were to compare writing a conventional play to painting a painting on a blank canvas, making a documentary play is more like carving a statue out of a block of marble. Hmm. There's a big mass of raw material that we're working with, but we carve a story structure out of that massive raw material. And uh, I say we because I write most of the time with my husband. Uh, He's also my writing partner, Eric Jensen. And our documentary plays we always make together. Our first documentary play was a play called The Exonerated that was based on interviews that we did with exonerated death row inmates and had a very long life in New York and around the country and internationally and was was made into a movie and had a pretty big life, which surprised nobody more than it surprised us. When we first (laughs) got the idea for that play, I was, you know, in my first year of acting school, just out of college, just moved to New York. Eric had been in New York for 10 years, but he was a young actor, just working as an actor here. And we had just started dating and we went to a conference on the death penalty at Columbia university And we were in a workshop at that conference on a group of cases called the Death Row 10, which are a group of cases of guys who had their confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander who was found to have done that and fired and much later prosecuted. But these guys, some of whom had no other evidence against them, were still sitting in prison, some of them on death row. And so we heard a lecture on the cases and we saw some sort of 60 minutes style documentary footage and it was all very disturbing, but really on an intellectual level. But then the organizers had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison and they set, they uh, connected the cell phone to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was 
telling us his story in the room. And by the time that call was cut off, everybody in the room was crying. Mm. It was very moving and a totally different experience than the, you know, hour plus we had just spent learning information about the case, even though what was being conveyed was not actually substantively different. The way it was being conveyed had a totally different impact. And Eric looked around the room after the call was cut off and he said, you know, yeah, but this is also kind of BS because we're at a death penalty conference, right? These are not the people that need to be having this experience. Right. How do you get around that problem? And we started writing notes back and forth to each other in the back of the classroom, literally, about how do you get around the problem of preaching to the choir and how could we do something that would bring this experience to people who might not think they would be interested in the subject, to people who think that the criminal justice system works exactly the way it's laid out in the constitution. Right. Right. And we hit on the idea in that conversation to write what became our play, the exonerated to travel around the country and interview exonerated death row inmates and create a play from those interview transcripts. And we went home and did a couple months of research and that spring, which was spring of 2000, we really sort of got catapulted into action on the project when uh, a colleague of ours, Alan Bushman, who ran a theater called The Culture Project, heard he, we talked to him about the idea and he said, great, I believe in this idea. I'll give you my theater for free for three nights in the fall. If you have something up in time for the elections, here's $1,000, go. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> and we had no idea how to, I mean, we had never written a play before. We had never, That's awesome. we, we were a couple of actors. Like we didn't know what we were doing really, yeah. but we called everybody we knew and we asked them for help. We called journalist friends and asked them how to do an interview. We called playwright friends and asked them how to write a play. We called nonprofit <laughs> friends and asked them how to raise money. Cause we were a couple of broke actors. We didn't even have the money to personally pay for the travel ourselves. Uh, right. We did like a mail, a snail mail mailing to my parents, friends and got like $40 donations to help contribute to the plane tickets. Um, and we called people in legal organizations to try and get in touch with the death row exonerees and figure out how to actually make contact with these folks. So we wound up working very closely with the Center on Wrongful Convictions and later the Innocence Project from the uh -huh. very beginning of the project because of that. And that helped us create a model, which we've applied to our other documentary theater work since then, of working in sort of informal partnerships with organizations who do work on the ground around the issue from the very beginning of the project, which helps us in the research stages. And then it helps us be of service with the work later when it's finally ready to be in front of an audience. That makes a lot of sense. That's a fascinating way to end up in writing. Yes. Not, I think, everyone's <laughs> normal backstory. Yes, it was. I mean, you know, both of us had always written sort of as a hobby, right? Um, mm -hmm. But that was, you know, back in the end of the 20th century when people thought that you still had to do one thing for a living, right? And you had to, you had <laughs> right. to pick a thing, and especially in the arts. Um, uh -huh. And so, you know, we were both very dedicated to building careers as actors, and it didn't occur to us that you could actually have more than one career. So both of us, any writing that we did was like just kind of for ourselves until this project. And then, you know, this project really, it, it dovetailed with a lot of changes in the zeitgeist around wrongful conviction and the criminal justice system in the United States. And it really became a big part of the national dialogue. It wound up affecting policy. It took on this sort of 
like I said, a life that was bigger than we ever could have imagined as we were starting out. And so we sort of woke up five years later and we had this project and there was a movie and we'd written a book about it and we were married and we were writing partners and we're like, okay, well, I guess now we're writers too. And we're going to make more work. (laughs) That's, that's fantastic. One question I had that came out of the way you were telling that story. Was that the first time you had really encountered or that something around these ideas of social justice and change and the necessity of those kind of came to the forefront in your life? Or was that something that had been there and this was just where it turned into, I need to do something? Yeah, it it definitely was not the first time that that sort of territory was important in my life. I was raised in a very socially engaged, politically engaged family. My parents, my parents are pretty amazing people. My dad is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who was drafted in the doctor's draft in Vietnam in 1965. And he was a psychiatrist in Vietnam, came back, was, and my mom, they had just met and my mom was in some of the earliest anti-Vietnam war protests while my dad was there. And then he came back and was a charter member of Vietnam veterans against the war. And then was at the edges of the group of activists, Vietnam vet psychiatrists who actually got PTSD into the DSM as a diagnosis. Wow. And then we moved to Washington when I was a child because he got a job as the first director of the National Vet Center's counseling program for the VA. And meanwhile, my mom was always very engaged in doing activism around all kinds of various topics like early childhood education and natural childbirth in the 70s. Um, so I was really raised with a lot of sociopolitical consciousness and the idea that you live your values in the world and you figure out a way to make a positive impact through whatever work it is you're called to do. I was also very encouraged by my parents to go into the arts when that it became clear that that was what I wanted to do. They were extremely supportive of me as an artist and I was raised with the idea that you figured out how to have a positive social impact with whatever you were called to, right? But when I first came to New York, when I when I was graduating from college, I was actually so sort of sociopolitically oriented that I was questioning my decision to go to New York and go to acting school. Like there was a part of me that actually felt that if I was really going to walk my talk, I should be off doing relief work somewhere or some kind of political organizing, right? Work that would really have a direct positive impact that was tangible that you could see. And I had a lot of self-doubt about whether I, I wanted to make a positive social impact through art and through storytelling and through theater specifically. But I, you know, I wondered whether it was actually really possible or whether that was kind of like a hippie Pollyanna idea of like, Oh, we'll make a difference with our art. Right. Cause I didn't yeah. know how to do it yet. Like I didn't actually have a game plan for how you can create tangible social change with art. I'm very, but I, but I came to New York and went to acting school anyway, because it was what I, it was what I really wanted to do. And I said, look, I'm just going to try to figure it out. And mm-hmm. I'm very grateful to have had the experience of creating the exonerated and the experience of living through what it did in its life, because it actually, it wound up being while the play was running off Broadway, there's a a governor, the former governor, George Ryan of Illinois had been, uh, he was a Republican pro death penalty governor. And right around the time actually that we got 
the idea for the exonerated, he had declared a moratorium on executions in Illinois because he became very concerned about the epidemic of wrongful conviction in his state, right? In a certain number of years, there had been like more exonerations than there were executions. And he looked at it, even though he was pro-death penalty, he looked at it and he said, look, something's really wrong here. We got to figure out what's going on. So he declared a moratorium on executions. He appointed a bipartisan commission to study the issue. By the time the play was up and running in New York two years later, that commission had come back with something like 89 recommendations. Exactly one of them had been enacted into law by the state legislature. Wow. He was about to leave office, and both candidates running to replace him had said they were going to lift the moratorium and start executions up again if they were elected. So he was faced with the situation where he had all of this information about what was wrong and how it could be fixed, but no way to fix it. And the machine was about to start up again, right? And he knew there were likely innocent people sitting there on death row. So he started publicly considering commuting the sentences of everyone on Illinois death row to life in prison before he left office. And that caused an enormous public uproar and controversy, and he was lobbied by both sides of the issue, and it was a big hoopla in Illinois. And he genuinely, by all accounts, did not know what he was going to do. He really was quite torn about whether to do this or not, because it was a major action. There were, I believe, 179 people on Illinois death row. So blanket clemency for 179 cases, that's a lot, right? Right. So the play, we actually brought the play to Chicago on an off night from the off-Broadway production and had it was performed for Governor Ryan and an audience of 50 exonerated death row inmates and several members, a lot of members of the Illinois State Legislature, et cetera. Um, We had a regular New York cast and then a couple of wonderful Rich Dreyfus came in and Danny Glover, Mike Farrell. Whoa. Oh, wow. And yeah, the, the cast was populated with incredible actors like that throughout its life because we had wrote three roles which rotated and a lot of extraordinary actors came in and out of the play over the years. So we performed it. It was performed for the governor as part of his decision-making process. And he did wind up commuting those sentences. And he has said publicly that the play was a factor in his decision. And now we would never claim to take credit for that decision in any way. He was, you know, so many people who are really like make their lives working with criminal justice and the legal system were in dialogue with him throughout that process. But just the fact that the play was a part of that conversation and that there were real human lives involved was, it was a very clear demonstration that, Yes, it is possible to create tangible social change with art and more mm-hmm. specifically with storytelling and story. And we, I really got a window into how you do it. And so the rest of my career since then has actually been both the documentary theater work, but all the work I do as a director, as a filmmaker, as I work as a consultant and coach with political, with progressive politicians and nonprofit leaders, it has been a sort of extended exploration of how can you actually create change with story? How does this work? And I'm probably jumping ahead, but there is, and we can circle back to this, but there is now, now neuroscience is actually starting to catch up with what artists have understood intuitively for a really long time, which is Mm -hmm. that our brains are wired to respond to story in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And there is actually a power and a sort of automatic response that we can count on 
to story, that is a power that can be harnessed for social good. One of the things I wanted to touch on that you alluded to along the way in that as you were just talking through it, though, you noted that you're helping people think through the ways that art works toward social change and justice and that it doesn't just have to be picketing and canvassing and handing out tracks or flyers or whatever. So how do you help people think that when you're training people, when you're coaching people on how to go about working toward ends of justice, of change from the perspective of art? Well, so, I mean, I think art is a very broad term and I think, yes. you know, it would be a different answer if we were talking about music or if we were talking about visual art, right? What the world that I work in and where I have some understandings and experience is in story specifically. So to look at how story can contribute to social change, I think it's important to understand how story really works and what it is in story that our brains are responding to. Because I think it is, it's become a sort of fashionable buzzword in like sort of nonprofit and foundation and even corporate circles, right? Storytelling, right? Everybody knows that like storytelling is a thing, right? Yeah. But we don't actually ever take a lot of time to break down what story really is and what we mean when we st- say that storytelling is powerful and when, and when we talk about the power of story, right? Yeah, we agree. <laughs> so basically when I'm talking about story, I am looking at the bare bones of the structure that an anthropologist named Joseph Campbell elucidated, which is known as the hero's journey. Campbell was an anthropologist who studied myth, and he devoted his entire life to studying all of the mythologies of all of the cultures all over the world since the beginning of recorded history, looking for the common underlying patterns. And he was able to identify common underlying patterns, the primary one of which he referred to as the monomyth, and pe- people also shorthanded as the hero's journey. And it ha- in Campbell's description, there are multiple component steps, and there are archetypal other figures in addition to the hero. There's mentor figures and allies and et cetera, et cetera. But What I work with is the sort of bare bones of it, which is that we have a protagonist. I like the word protagonist better than hero. Mm -hmm. We We have a protagonist. We meet them in their status quo, in their known world, where they are going through their life. They are going through the everyday, but something in them is unactualized, unresolved, wounded, or not working. And early in the story, there is an inciting incident that disrupts that status quo, puts the protagonist on a quest towards a goal. During that quest, they encounter obstacles, challenges, they're in danger. They have to overcome or face or meet these challenges on the way to fulfilling or ultimately not fulfilling their quest. And they are transformed through that process so that by the end of the story, they either fulfill or do not fulfill their quest, but they are transformed, they're actualized, and the thing in them that was unactualized or immature or wounded at the beginning of the story has changed. So that basic structure is an even more stripped-down version of what Campbell identified as the underlying basic structure of all myths. It happens to line up with what neuroscience is starting to understand 
about how the brain responds to story. There's a neuroscientist named Paul Zak, who's one of my favorites. And he has done experiments working with testing and trying to measure the social impact of stories and what kinds of story structures will actually motivate people towards pro-social actions. And he designed a series of experiments working with the same situation, which I believe it was a child with cancer, right? And the same characters, but differently structured stories about those same characters, like three minute videos and measured subjects responses neurochemically to those stories. And then looked at whether they had been given like $5 at the beginning of the experiment, whether they would at the end of the experiment donate that money to a cause associated with the story they had just seen. What he found is that stories when they affect stories when they affect us do a lot of different things to us neurochemically. They engage our mirror neuron network, all kinds of different regions of the brain, the regions of the brain associated with theory of mind and we can talk about that more and empathy, right? But what he was looking at specifically was oxytocin and cortisol, both of which are measurable in the blood. A lot of these studies are done in MRIs, but he had people outside of MRIs and he was measuring blood levels. And what he found was the stories that spiked oxytocin levels didn't correlate much with pro-social action afterwards. The stories that just spiked cortisol levels didn't correlate much with pro-social action afterwards. The stories that correlated with the highest rate of pro-social action were the ones that spiked both our cortisol levels and our oxytocin levels. So what that means, oxytocin is, people call it the empathy molecule. It's what connects us to each other. It's the neurochemical that's released when we hug somebody for 20 seconds or that makes a baby's head smell good so you want to cuddle it, right? It's our, <laughs> it's the bonding it's the bonding thing in the brain, right? And cortisol is a stress hormone. So as a storyteller, you look at that and I can identify, oh, that means empathy and narrative tension. The stories that connected you to the protagonist and triggered that mirror neuron empathic response and took you on a journey with the protagonist that created some stress and some tension about whether or not they're actually going to overcome the challenges they need to in order to reach their goal. Those are the ones that have an impact on us, right? So I think if you understand that we are actually wired to respond that way to that structure, then that can be utilized for social good. Clearly, it can also be utilized for social bad, <laughs> right? Right. And you see that happening all of the time. I mean, I think, you know, the right wing in America is knows actually a lot about this and has been using it very actively for quite some time. And I think that has a great deal to do with why we're in the situation that we're in right now, right? The well, left has not been so sophisticated about working with story, right? Like the left likes data and social science. And, and, you know, if we can just demonstrate to you that we're serious and that we have the facts on our side, you'll see that we, that we are right yeah. and you'll come over to us. Right. And yeah. that's not really how it works because, um, you know, we, we like story. We're wired for story. We're attracted to story and faced with the choice between a bad story on one side and no story on the other side, we will go to the bad story. So the left has to tell a better story 
we have to tell a good story. And I think you saw some of that with Obama, who was actually quite sophisticated about storytelling. Mm. And he was working with a set of methodologies that were created by a guy, a community organizer named Marshall Gans, who's quite brilliant, who has a theory of story and social change. And, you know, Obama was able to work with the power of story to tell a better story, to tell a story that instead of triggering fear, triggered people's hope and enlisted them. And that is a large part. It's certainly as much as his grassroots ground game. That was a large part of why he was able to do what he was able to do, particularly in the first election, right? Coming out of nowhere. Yeah. And I think the key to me where all of the politics are and where all of the really important choices are as a storyteller are in that first empathy hook, right? They're in the choice of the protagonist, right? The narrative tension part is like, there's people out there doing work about like, how do you tell a good story? Like what creates narrative tension? How do you craft an obstacle and suspense and pacing and all of that kind of stuff? And that stuff is like, a little more straightforward. But to me, where all of the important choices are, are in the choice of the protagonist. Who are you asking your audience to identify with? Whose shoes are you asking them to walk in? That is a very, very multi-layered and loaded choice. And if you can find, like we did with The Exonerated, and as we have tried to with our with our uh, subsequent work, subsequent especially documentary work, protagonists who are accessible empathically and emotionally to people on multiple sides of an issue, right? Then all of a sudden there's an opening to build empathic bridges, even among people that are really like, think they're really sort of tribally split or think they're really opposed to each other. It's a kind of workaround for the polarization that we're seeing and I, th- I think it's it's really fascinating, but I've seen it play out over and over and over again. It works. And I think that's incredibly important in no small part because sometimes we end up with issues. The, the motivating example you gave at the beginning is one that has so long been politically aligned, and it doesn't necessarily need to be. There's no particular reason why the death penalty is politically aligned with one party or not mm-hmm. the other. Right. And so many other issues are similar where they end up aligned in a certain way, almost by happenstance. And then people do that solidifying into it because of that sense of tribal affiliation and belonging. And some of that's good. A lot of it ends up coming out in bad ways. We see that with many things. But being able to use story like you're describing to kind of do an end around and say, hang on, let's let's reframe and maybe you can you can cut away some of those very unnecessary disagreements. There are going to be deeper disagreements that you can't just shortcut, but to be able to do it to establish that empathy, I think is that's a way of framing it that I hadn't thought of before. And I really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like with exonerated, you know, the death penalty debate at that point was totally polarized between, even if you get, even if you take the sort of partisan political piece out of it, it was morally and ethically polarized between people who are sort of abstractly saying on one side that the state or human structures of governance never have the right to take a human life, no matter what, Right. And that that right Right. is something that exists beyond the realm of human choices. And on the other side, people who morally, truly believe if you take somebody else's life, you forfeit your own life, your, your own right to life. Right. And that can be taken away from you. And 
the debate could stay in that polarized space, that sort of abstracted moral binary forever, and in fact had, and was really stuck there if you're having the conversations on those terms. But if you look at, hey, no matter what side of that you land on, I think we can all agree that people who are innocent shouldn't be executed, right? right? (laughs) Right. And morally speaking, and so let's actually look journalistically at the fact that that happens and start there and then go on a journey into a human life about what the impact of that is and what that actually feels like and what it does and learn about how that happens through the prism of an individual human life. Then we can start having a totally different conversation. Yeah. So I'm super interested in the findings that you just told us about where uh, oxytocin and cortisol were not enough. You had to have them together. So you had to have empathy Mm -hmm. and stress together. Chris and I on this show talk a lot about technology companies and the way that they project their own narrative. We've used the word narrative more than the word story, but uh, they project their own narrative, but it's almost entirely devoid of empathy. It's almost always, uh, and intentionally, a non-empathic sort of, of narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this march of progress, technologically utopian, this sort of thing. So thinking about other types of stories other than these potentially successful stories that this research has found, h- how do we get through that? How do we help people to see that these stories don't have, well, one, uh, in, in your work with people who are, who are trying to do these sorts of stories, how do you move them from potentially a conception of story that isn't as effective to one that is effective? Um, and secondly, how do you, when you're working with people, do, do you have to sort of guide them in this or is it really intuitive as you're saying with this sort of neuroscience that we that we have that people just respond to it. I well okay so I think that this the structures that make up story are something that can be taught. Just like in visual art you can teach somebody composition or in music you can teach somebody music theory. Like I think that this underlying story structure is a kind of math right? In the same way that compositional geometry is a kind of math. So I personally, when I'm coaching and teaching artists and in my own practice as an artist, I, I can get on a big soapbox about the fact that I don't believe in the concept of genius and I, of artistic genius, creative <laughs> genius. And I think it's a really unhelpful concept, right? Yeah. It stops so many people from making work yeah. and it sort of mystifies and romanticizes the whole process in a way that's like totally unnecessary and actually blocks people from learning how to Mm -hmm. do it. I feel Mm -hmm. similarly about the concept of talent. I don't think talent is a thing. I think there's, you know, certain things come easier to some people than others, Mm -hmm. right? Or more intuitively, that's fine. But you know, that sort of pales in comparison to actually learning how to do the thing and training the muscles. So I'm very, when I'm, when I'm teaching and coaching artists and actually my work in the political sphere, teaching story tools in the political sphere started and came out of my work coaching and teaching artists, right? I'm a structuralist. I teach story structure. I work with screenwriters and playwrights and novelists and memoirists 
And I teach, I have a methodology that's called character-based story structure that's grounded in all of this stuff and a set of steps that I take artists through that are applicable to any character-based story form. And at a certain point, I realized, oh, these tools are not just for artists. Like I'm teaching people how to apply them in the arts, but they're just as applicable. And I, I was starting to do speaker training with formerly incarcerated individuals, death row exonerees, et cetera, people from impacted populations who were going out and working with organizations to tell their stories publicly. And when I started doing that, I realized, oh, I'm actually teaching them the same thing that I'm teaching professional screenwriters. So, and and this is a concrete set of tools that can be learned. I think your first question was about how do we do this on like a mass scale? I think the one thing that's important to understand, and this is actually the difference between how most people are using the word narrative versus the word story, right? Like narrative is, is, is generally used in a more kind of meta term, right? Like we're all embedded in these meta narratives, right? The, the narrative of American exceptionalism or whatever, right? Like that these larger cultural stories yeah. that are operating on a mass level. When I'm talking about story, I'm talking about the form that I described where there is a protagonist, who has a problem and goes on a journey to solve that problem. I see that. Yeah. That that's the mechanism that kicks in our, our empathic processes. And there, I don't know actually the degree to which there's science on this, but I see it play out in reality all of the time. <laughs> our empathic processes are, and, and it makes sense with the way what neuroscience understands about why story affects us and how it affects us. It affects us through our mirror neuron network, right? It, which works off of other people's faces and their signals. So we're wired to empathize with a person, maybe a small group of people. But there, when it gets to be a certain number, our capacity to empathize sort of checks out or goes offline, right? Like when it gets to be a, a large enough number to be abstract. And there has been science actually done on this around victims and of nat- of disasters and wars, actually, that like we're we're less likely to be concerned about hearing that a hundred thousand people were killed than hearing that 10,000 people were killed, right? Right, Like that the scale at a certain point like shuts off our ability to process. Yeah. So I think that's something that's really under, important for us to understand that when we're working with story to create social change, it has to be at the level of the individual story. Now, Marshall Gans, actually, who created the methodology that Obama was working from in his first campaign has a methodology to build community organizing out of that, that goes from the story of I to the story of we, right? The story of us. So you can build a larger collective story starting from the place of the individual, but you have to start from the place of the individual. So what that tells me is that we need lots and lots and lots of stories. Yeah, We need many good stories doing good work out there. It's not about just one. It's not about like, what is the one meta narrative that if we can <laughs> figure it out, we can like fix everything, right? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> it actually has to happen on an individual and small group level. Yeah. For a uh, a podcast that's that's sort of interested in the long process of of slowly getting better. Uh, we like to hear that, <laughs> <laughs> indeed, because we definitely agree that the 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 quick fix does not necessarily go anywhere, uh, even if it has any initial success at all. It's it's we we definitely agree that there's a a set of small scales over a long period of time can add up 
um, to to real change. And I think that's what you know you you showed with the exonerated is that this uh, two people working in a room eventually became part of uh, a great number of people being exonerated. And that's uh, I think that's proof of how that story develops in the world, not just in the individual piece of work. So that's really. It's really cool. And then, uh, so I'm a music journalist myself. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so I know the work of Lester Bangs quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and so uh, he is definitely a seminal force in the field. How does your play How to Be a Rock Critic fit in with your interest in <laughs> story and social change and ethics? Because, I mean, he's... He's he's social change, but he's very strange forms of social change. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. And I mean, in a certain way, look, so so we've made these documentary plays, right? We made Exonerated. We made another play in 2008. The Ford Foundation sent us to Jordan to interview Iraqi civilian refugees. And we made a play mm. from that those interviews called Aftermath. We are we've just completed work or are you know, at the late stages of work on our new documentary play, which should be off Broadway soon, which is based on interviews we did with surviving family members of the miners who were killed in the 2010 Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia. And that's got wow. music by Steve Earle. Um, so, you know, we do these documentary plays that are like, you can look at all of those and say, oh, okay, I understand what that thing is, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a specific type of work. And then, Meanwhile, we also adapted Lester Bangs's entire body of work into a solo show, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, how is that exactly the same? It's, there's actually a lot more overlap than you would expect, right? Because we had access to his, to, you know, his whole archive, right? 20,000 pages of published and unpublished work. Wow. So, and, you know, he died in 1982, but he wrote everything while he was alive, right? Like he was just writing down everything all the time. And he wrote, he was a gonzo journalist. So he wrote in the first person, right? So we basically treated that mass of material as one giant extended interview with Lester, (laughs) right? And we brought the same methodology Uh to carving the play out of that material as we did to our documentary work, right? It just didn't start with interviews with a living person. But the play, and we gave ourselves a little bit more freedom, right? Like, like I said, probably something like 95% of the text of our documentary plays is taken very directly from interviews or primary source documents with Rock Critic because the sort of journalistic aspect wasn't as important to the work's impact. We gave ourselves a little more freedom. Like I would say it's probably more like 85% and then there was like 15% Lester Bang style connective tissue that we invented, right? Um, We didn't change any facts, but in terms of just like the words being taken from the pages that he generated. So that play started because Eric, my husband, was a huge Lester Bangs fan. When he was a kid and his parents were splitting up, he was sent to live with cousins for the summer, going through a hard time. Mm. And he had a cool under older cousin who under his bed instead of having playboy he had like cream magazine right (laughs) and so eric actually discovered lester in cream magazine as a 10 year old as the same kind of alienated kid going through a rough time that lester had been yeah and you know eric was one of 
Lester's intended audiences. Like that's who he was writing for, right? Those brilliant, creative, alienated children who didn't know who else was out there in the world who was like them, right? So Eric had been a fan for a really long time, and he's a big, he's a, a sometime musician and a, a big music geek. Like he's one of those encyclopedic rock history brain guys, right? And so he brought me um, Psychotic Reactions in Carburetor Dung, Lester's book, while The Exonerated was running. So early in our writing life together, right? When we didn't really know what our next project would be or whatever. And he said, look, I don't know. There's something about, I love this guy. He's brilliant. His voice is very theatrical. Just read the book and tell me what you think. I read it. I had you know, my exposure to Lester had been Phil Hoffman and Almost Famous. Like, that's all I knew about him, right? Which is not terrible. No, not terrible. <laughs> not at all. But I had never read his writing, right? Right, right. And I I read his writing, and I was blown away by his voice. And I came back to Eric. I said, look, I have no idea how the hell this is a play. Like, it's literally <laughs> rock criticism. Like, I don't know how you make that into a play, but let's try. Yeah. And so we spent the next few years finding his estate, building a relationship with his estate. And then, you know, at that point his archive was like in cardboard boxes. Like, you know, when Lester died, his friends had come into his apartment and basically just picked up every piece of paper that was everywhere and put it in cardboard boxes. So Eric went down to Austin and Xeroxed by hand individually, every piece of paper, including like napkins and whatever. And then we spent another few years going through that material and entering it into the computer so that we could work with it. Because at that point there wasn't software that would do that for you or at least not that was widely available. So you created a Lester Banks archive. Kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say that we organized it in a sort of library type way, but we got it into our computer. And we, so we spent a long time with the material before we even started working with it. And then we got a commission from Center Theater Group in LA to finish the play and to actually like take that material and create the script. And it was done, the play was done at the Kirk Douglas in LA at South Coast Rep and Steppenwolf. And then we were off Broadway with it at the public theater last, about a year ago in January. And now we're working on the movie. But I will say at first, this seemed just like a cool idea that we were excited about that was very disconnected from the other work that I'm talking about, even though our methodology was overlapping. Mm, yeah. But the deeper I got involved with Lester Bangs and who he was and what he had to say, I realized he's talking about all the same stuff. He's talking about it in the context of music, and he's talking about it in a slightly more sort of abstract philosophical sense, right? He's not like talking about political issues in a direct, literal way. But he was one of our great moralists. I mean, he Lester was an ethicist. He was actually concerned with how do you live a moral life. And that's what he was trying to get at through his writing, yeah. right? And through music. And so once we started getting to the core of like what he was really trying to say and what he was trying to do with his life, we realized, oh, he's grappling with all the same questions. And he was grappling with questions about capitalism and about alienation and about hero worship and commodification and the market and transcendence and beauty and utopia and how do you take the utopian experience that people are capable of with art and translate that and actually build community with it when you're also dealing with the distorting forces of capitalism and the market and fame and celebrity like he was grappling with some really deep questions 
he also happened to be like cool and a wild man and fun (laughs) and like a crazy guy who's fascinating as a character, but it's a wonderful thing through the character study to be able to really get at the deeper stuff that he was wrestling with. Yeah. It's interesting because so many of those things are just essentially human. And I think we, sometimes we see some interesting, cool figure and it's easy to glance over the ways in which anybody thoughtful has to, at some point, grapple with those questions of the human. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of leads me into our, our last high-level question like this. So we come up more or less often in the show. Some seasons, it's all the time. Some seasons, it barely gets explicitly mentioned. But we tend to come at things from an at least implicitly Christian perspective, because we're both Christians. But we're often interested as a result to hear you know, regardless of where people's particular ethical stances come from, what the ground for it is, and whether that's sort of a secular humanism or some kind of spirituality, some kind of religiosity, what has that been for you as your work has been shaped and developed and your life has shaped and developed? What kinds of influences come in for you on your ethical framework, on your view of reality? That's a really great question. So, I was raised in a way that I really value um, by my very cool parents <laughs> as far around um, religion and spirituality. I was exposed to a lot of different religions as a kid. And I think, you know, my parents, if you asked them, they would both express the belief that all religions are ultimately getting at the same thing. So I, I think that the way that I was raised had contained that implicit understanding that what was worth looking for and worth seeking was the thing that's underneath the search that's in all the world's religions, right? Which is kind of Joseph Campbell-y, actually. Campbell, yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> about funny. that. Yep. Um, but so, you know, my parents were meditators. They both studied for a time with a meditation teacher named Muktananda. I met him when I, he was like a teacher from India. I met him when I was two. Um, (laughs) I was exposed to Buddhism. We went to a Unitarian church for a time. We went Hmm. to a wonderful progressive Episcopal church for several formative years of my childhood. I went to Quaker camp, which had, Quakerism had a really big formative Hmm. influence on my developing Mm -hmm. spirituality as a kid. So those were the sort of earliest influences. And like I said, you know, the common thread running through all of those was the understanding that spirit is bigger than any one religion. And all of these paths are actually leading to the same place. And so I internalized that in my teenage and college years, you know, I sort of synthesized it myself. I've always been very interested in Eastern religions um, in sort of the devotional Hindu bhakti traditions mm-hmm. and various mm-hmm. forms of Buddhism. So I sort of went deeper into some of those, as well as like pagan and nature-based traditions that come from where my ancestors come from in Scotland and France, right? Earth-based traditions. Again, to me, it's like there's there's connective tissue between all of it. Um, and then in terms of like how that 
started turning into a moral framework or an ethical framework. And I think, again, the seeds for that are in my childhood, being raised in a social justice-oriented household. I went to my first demonstration in third grade. It was a protest against apartheid outside the South African Mm. embassy, right? So, like, that was, it was always connected for me, right? Like, the spiritual impulse was about making the world a better place for everyone and yeah. actually for, for all beings. I have been a vegetarian since I was 11 years old, mm. which was a choice I made at Quaker camp. I had a really, really wonderful philosophy professor who I would love to give a shout out to actually, who shout had out. a major influence on me in, um, in early college, my first two years of college, I went to a school called McAllister. Um, she's a really incredible thinker named Karen Warren, who is, is uh, she's an ecofeminist ethicist. And I took a class with her called Feminism and Environmental Ethics that had a major impact on me. And I think I also took a more general ethics class with her. And um, she really helped synthesize a lot of things that I was already working with, right, in my political interests and in my spiritual interests into the concept of like, you can have an ethical framework, right? Like Mm -hmm. what framework are you actually using to put all of this into practice in the world? What are your beliefs? What are you trying to do? And that kind of structural thinking was incredibly helpful to me. I Mm -hmm. also really, um, then just in some of my own reading at around the same time, there's a thinker, uh, a Russian guy named Peter Kropotkin, who is a big philosophical influence on me too. He um, is a old school, you know, 1800s communitarian anarchist and came up with the concept of mutual aid um, and societies based on, he talked, did a lot of work around like what it would look like to have a society that's based on mutual aid rather than on any kind of compulsory anything, whether that's compulsory communism or capitalism or right like any kind of top down <laughs> thing but like what happens if we're actually being of service to each other and what would that actually look like yeah hmm. that's really interesting thank you for sharing that we one of the things that i was just noting as you were talking through it is i i really appreciate whenever we get to have that kind of conversation with someone oftentimes we land in very different places and yet there are really interesting points of connection along the way. So thank you for talking about that with us for a minute. Yeah, sure. Like Chris said, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're really, really interested in people who are doing this sort of art and Mm -hmm. ethical sort of connection. And uh, over the, the years that we've been doing uh, winning slowly. One of the things that's been hardest to find is people who are uh, deeply analyzing art, yeah. ethics, and then to to some extent uh, the the technology and and the ways of of doing different media um, that you do. And so we were super excited to have this interview, and then uh, all of our excitement was was totally realized, and that this has been one of the the kind of angles that we've been really missing from. The podcast, and so it's it's really exciting to hear people who are thinking deeply yeah. and ethically and socially about uh, about art. And so, not to say that there aren't many many others who are doing this, because there definitely are. Um, but it's been harder for us as a podcast to to kind of get into those discussions and and those areas. Awesome. Well, and I'm you know I'm I'm also a nerd, and I like I like to t- I, <laughs> I like to talk about 
why I do what I do. Right. Like I'm, there was a part of me after college, like that part of me that wasn't sure whether I wanted to go or whether it was okay to go to New York, to go to acting school because I should be doing community organizing or relief somewhere. Mm -hmm. There was another part of me that thought that I should go get my PhD in critical theory. Right. So, so I have a little inner academic, right? Yeah, I I could tell. There are a lot of artists out there that don't like to talk about why they do what, what they do. Right. Because the art speaks for itself. I happen to like to operate on sort of both planes at once. I Mm -hmm. like to make the stuff and then I like to kind of take it apart and talk about the process. Now your research method for Lester Bangs would put, uh, some, some academic archivists to shame. So, uh, you, (laughs) I was thinking that as I was going along, like, wow, that's, that's some good research, but, uh, I am uh, a research professor at Arizona State University. So Oh amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. We it's great. And we're we're really happy to have had you. Thank you so much again. Um and yes, thank you. Uh we we just are so thrilled. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to give a, a shout out to, tell people about something that's coming up that you're interested in? Um, this is your chance to, to plug the work, as we say. I mean, I have so many, th- I, we always have many, many things coming up. Um, <laughs> but I think probably the best, and it's also ever changing because we've got, we're always working on five projects at once. And so new ones are coming up at different times. But what I would say is I would love for people to go to my website because that stays updated, yeah. which is www.jessicacblank.com. And sign up for my email list there because that's the sort of pipeline for all of the stuff that's happening and also stuff that I'm talking about and thinking about. I'm also pretty active on Instagram. My Instagram is also Jessica C. Blank. Okay. There's another Jessica Blank out there who's a graphic designer. So ah. <laughs> she got all the domains without the middle. So I had to use my middle initial. There you go. There you go. Well, yeah, we will definitely put links to those in the show notes. And Great. Uh, if you're interested in what Jessica is doing, definitely go to those places, follow her. Uh, I think we as Winning Silly will definitely be following what she's doing as she goes forward. So the music at the beginning of the episode was used uh, with permission. So don't use it uh, without permission. Thanks for doing that. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. We really appreciate it. Among other things, it let us spring for a recording setup that means we should be getting really great audio from Jessica for this, and that is not always a guarantee. So we really do appreciate and really do take good advantage of sponsorship. So thank you. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly or patreon.com slash winning slowly. And uh, another thing that we're able to do with our money is to contribute to the Internet Archive, which we have done for this year. True that. Uh, It's January, so we gave our annual contribution of 10% of everything that you guys and gals gave us to the Internet Archive so that you can find things when they're not on their originally hosted spaces on the Internet anymore. So there you are. As always, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with Season 7. Ta-da! Ta-da!